This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. William Maxwell's With Reference to an Incident at a Bridge, writes Peter Orner in the essay December Rain, is about the weight of guilt. As a 12-year-old boy growing up in Lincoln, Illinois, the narrator in Maxwell's story commits an act that haunts him for the rest of his life. He'd been a good kid who went out of his way to help elderly people across the street who could have managed perfectly well on their own. He and other Boy Scouts organize a group of younger Cub Scouts. But rather than teach them the ropes about the Scouts, they use the opportunity to initiate the boys. What follows is an act of cruelty that so many decades later, the narrator is still thinking about. Even all these years later, the narrator not only hasn't forgotten these vivid memories, but he still feels guilty for them. He's still after some kind of atonement. All these years later, he's still grasping at that. He feels guilty because even though he was just a child when the incident on the bridge occurred, that cruel act has other complicated implications. He's carrying that around too. And the burden is heavy. What the story does ultimately, writes Peter Orner, is instruct him on the dangerousness of his own heart. Here now, Peter Orner and I discuss William Maxwell's with reference to an incident at a bridge. One thing I think about this story is that if you're going to dedicate a story to one of the other great short story writers of your generation, um, my sense is that it that it must mean a lot to you. So I think that, the, I mean, we know that you and I both have read the letters of Welty and Maxwell. We know how close they were. And the fact that he dedicated this story with reference to an incident at a bridge to Eudora Welty, it's always held a special place for me even within Maxwell's other great stories, this one has always stood out in a way. He held very, very close, likely very personal. I think there's no, if it's not personal, it's incredible. You know what I mean? And and, and, and I, I hate to violate the rule, the sacred rule of not conflating a piece of fiction with the writer. But here, it's hard not to. Well, she often said to him that he, about his work, that he did that, that he was writing autobiographically, and often he would reject that idea. And I think for good reason, right? Because even when you are writing, quote unquote, from your own life, it doesn't make it any less dramatically fiction. And I think I think Maxwell sort of embodies that idea in a way. And, and yet it, it totally contradicts what I'm saying, because this one I truly believe happened. You know what I mean? But 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 did it? I just think it, that's the beauty of it, is that I have no idea. It is a piece of fiction, and it's a glorious piece. But that's an interesting idea that he dedicates it to Eudora Welty. Then I suppose he really believed it, it was worthy of that, or ho- hoped it was worthy of that, or came pretty close. Tell me, can you tell me why you think this is closer to a true story for him than not? I have no basis for believing that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and and yet, you know, I think at, at a certain point, any great 
piece of fiction will do that in a first person, right? I mean, shouldn't it? I mean, we, you know, we, I truly believe this story. And, and I, cause I believe in the fictional author and what the fictional author did, you know? Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'm completely present in this one, you know, like a lot of Maxwell's stories, they're set back in Lincoln, Illinois, where he grew up and where he spent most of his imagined life imaginative is that word mm-hmm. um life you know conjuring up from manhattan where he was you know a a pretty fancy uh, uh editor at the new yorker and and wandered around manhattan and, and went to an analyst and, and spent a lot of time in, in in the met you know and yet his you know m- most of his fictional life was um set back home in lincoln so whether it happened or not, it's so real. It feels so true. Even the tiny little incidental things that you sort of feel like, oh, did he need to include that? And then you just take a step back from it and you realize that's so real. It's so. It just is so, it feels so true. It feels so actual. Why is it important to you? Or is it important to you? Or is it, I mean, is it something, I mean, do you care? I don't care. <laughs> no, but, but we both, but we both believe it. Ha- I just feel like we're 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 falling into like the trap of like, you know what I mean? I like, think I'm channeling everything what, I believe in. I'm falling in the trap of falling for. But I think I'm channeling Welty because she was adamant. So in so many things that I've read about their relationship, so I feel like I'm I'm sort of channeling her and sort of thinking, what what happened here? But. It doesn't matter. I mean, right. as a work of fiction, it's so great. It it really like we got that out of the way, and now we can right. And we <laughs> got it out of the way, but I mean, I guess if we circle back around. It doesn't matter at all, and yet it's everything that we believe it happened. And we believe <laughs> it happened because the story is so, you know, embodied sentence by sentence to to, to the to what you know. I was telling you the other day. I taught this story to a group of. Um, you know, sophomores and juniors uh, the other day. And, um, you know, these really cool uh, students were, were just, one of them was truly blown away by the last sentence. Kind of a beautiful moment. He couldn't really explain why he was blown away. And I said, that's it. There it is right there. You don't have to, you don't have to explain it. You don't have to articulate it. You just have to be blown away. And so maybe we should talk about the story. Yes. But I do want to say, you and I both know with The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner. We don't have to talk about it. We really don't want to talk about it. But here we go. <laughs> so, we just want you to read it. We, exactly. Here we are. We open up with uh, the, the narrator watching these uh, young boys walking along the street. And then the reverie just opens right up. And there we go. We're, we're back to when the narrator was... 12 years old, and then we get the story. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the age of 12 and and his being 12 years old and the things that were happening to him in his world and sort of set things up for us for what's coming up. It's such a beautiful opening in the sense it's so simple, right? When I see 10-year-old boys walking along the street in New York City or on the Crosstown bus, I am struck by how tiny they are. But at the time I'm speaking of, I wasn't very big myself. I mean, it's, you know, it, it seems so simple, right? And, and I could, you know, I could write until the end of time and not write two sentences as seamless as those. 
this isn't maybe even the most beautiful thing Maxwell ever wrote. There are other mm -hmm. uh, works that I truly love, but there's something about just the, the simplicity. I see 10-year-old boys in New York, I think back to the time when I was 10 or I was 12. And then the, the paragraph you're talking about, the second one, it starts out at 12. I was considered old enough to join the Presbyterian church and did. In Sunday school and church, I recited along with the rest of the congregation. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And then this beautiful sentence that any part of this formal confession was not self-evident did not cross my mind, nor I think anyone else's. We said it because it was true and vice versa. Yes. And then after this creed, then we get another one with the, the Boy Scout creed right after that. I just love the way that he juxtaposes these things. But And right before that paragraph, I do want to say that very first paragraph moves into from these beautiful, simple sentences that open up the world for us to this idea of how insular his worldview was in Illinois. Yes. And then he would and then he says, the unknown world, the infinitude of unconscious emotions and impulses didn't come up in ordinary conversation, though I dare say there were some people who were <laughs> aware of it. So it's full of lines like that where he sort of snaps back to his present state. You know, he's reflecting, but then we get these sorts, these nuggets of of insight that he's not hitting us over the head with them. And, and then he moves us to the next element of memory. And I mean, just to, to pause a little bit on that unknown world sentence, before that, he says, I, I hadn't been anywhere except for Bloomington, Illinois, which is 30 miles away. And then the great metropolis of Peoria. <laughs> to have his teeth straightened <laughs> and that was it he's he hasn't even made it to chicago right right and he's from illinois so this is a this is a, you know and yet as as the line and you point out it doesn't matter where you're from the, the darkness is there <laughs> and and it is not an earthly paradise that that i that i thought it was as a kid though i dare say there were some people who were aware of it <laughs> the unknown world the world beyond quote unquote the earthly paradise embodied in this case by Peoria, which is absolutely for, to somebody from Chicago hilarious. And so we see how sort of closed up his view is for all his his feelings at that age anyway, like he was really stretching out and stretching his expanding his horizons. But at age 12, he could join the Presbyterian Church. At age 12, he could join the Boy Scouts and it's just so, so interesting how these two entities merge in terms of, I don't know, it's not a, a questioning necessarily that he's doing about his belief system or what's shaking his belief system. That doesn't happen until much later. And I would say it's happening as we read the story and as he tells us the story through this voice. But all kinds of things are happening at this juncture at age 12. Right. Yeah, you know, I should say it's, it's story is kind of a kind of a, an interesting education for a Jewish kid from Chicago. You know, <laughs> I'm learning about what it's like to be Presbyterian in southern, you know, central southern Illinois. It's it's uh, wonderful. And then and, you know, this, as you suggest, the story shifts. I mean, it is we should let people know it's only what two and a half pages. It's right? a very three, short three, one. Yeah. Um, 
and it starts to kind of move towards where it's going as you say like you know he's indoctrinated into the church he's indoctrinated into the boy scouts and as part of his indoctrination of the boy scouts is that the boy scouts help run the cub scouts yes and as he starts to get into to that he remembers uh, a particular cub scout who happened to have been Jewish. And I, I find that reading the story again this morning, I noticed something that I think I, you know, I think we're going to obviously pay a lot of attention to the ending, but it, it captures a certain time. And then I don't know of a story that does this necessarily. It captures the time, at least from the point of view of, of an ordinary American, let's say, where Maxwell can kind of play that role, right? Yeah. White Presbyterian, you know, quote unquote, ordinary American in this time and place, right? Yeah. Which is before the depression. We're talking about the tens and twenties, right? Yes. And so he, he says something really striking um, towards the end of the story. He says that the Russian Jewish family was quite different. He makes a distinction as, you know, kind of a, a, always been sort of this cliche um, in, in American Judaism in, in American Jewish culture that, you know, cliche, the difference between German Jews and Russian Jews. German Jews were more assimilated and cultured. Russian Jews were less assimilated, less cultured. So here's what he says. The Russian Jewish family was quite different. They were immigrants, spoke imperfect English, and had only recently passed through Ellis Island. So far as the Lincoln Evening Courier was concerned, news that was not local tended to be about a threatened coal strike or calling out the National Guard to quell some disturbance. Very seldom was there any mention of what went on in Europe. I was a grown man before I learned about the pogroms that drove the Rabinowitzes from their homeland. So we're talking about before the Holocaust and how most people in America would have had no idea you know, the travails faced by um, Russian Jews coming to America, at least it wasn't discussed. And I, I found that pretty interesting perspective. Yeah, because this insular space that we're in with the very first paragraph, we see how he carries over this idea about just this lack of information and knowledge about others and the things that he does seem to pick up on Really, it's coming from his parents and other people. He does right. say, um, when, he's when he first mentions the Cub Scouts, among the six or eight little boys who turned up for the first meeting was Max Rabinowitz, whose father had a clothing store on a rather dingy side street facing the interurban tracks in the Chicago and Alton Depot, and was a Russian Jew. This distinction would not have meant anything to me if it also had not represented a prejudice of some kind on the part of my elders. And, he, and then he says, I suppose it is why I remember Maxie and not any of the others. And I connect, connected that section to what comes in the paragraph right before the one you just read, where he says, at that age, if I thought about social acceptance at all, it was as one of the facts of nature Looking back, I can see that manners enter, entered into it, but so did money. The people my parents considered to be of good families all had, or had had, land, income from property, something beside wages from a job. So he's, he's thinking back to 
what his influences were. I mean, the newspapers didn't have anything about the rest of the world, it seems like, um, in his memory. And I, I'm so interested in this idea of, of how insular his world was and how cut off he was from information. And it's not just because he wasn't traveling around beyond the confines of these towns near where he lived and, you know, got as far as Peoria. But then also what's so interesting to me is when he's walking uh, after he introduces Professor Ogilvie and he talks about that property and he says, on one side of the lawn, there was an apple orchard and on the other, a pasture with a little stream running through it. It just feels so open. That's the one point in the story where I don't feel claustrophobic. Right, right, right. And then I do. <laughs> and then, then he, yeah. yeah. I, I think you're getting it. Like the claustrophobia is, plus the, the, the prejudice, the anti-Semitism, the, the sort of sense of, of, of the world sort of being one thing for a certain type of person. And yet there are these outsiders who are living amongst them. The German Jews, of course, get sort of, you know, a bit of a pass because they're um, they're wealthier and they're part of the clubs. But, the you know, the, the Russian Jews are, are, you know, slightly more on the outside. There is a sense of um, I don't I don't know exactly. I, I think it gets to why. I think we're dancing around what happens. But I mean, what happens is, a, is an act of, you know, Kind of um, startling cruelty, you know, truly startling. I, I, every time I read this, I'm like, Jesus, really? And, you know, it, it catches your breath. And it's so, you know, Maxwell is so deceptive. It seems so clear. You know, every sentence is so clear. And that, that wonderful line that you point out when, when, when he's walking in the brook and singing to himself, it does have the sense of openness and that sense of earthly paradise. And yet, within this earthly paradise, is shocking, and 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 unprepared for cruelty that he perpetrates. Yes, he walks from that open space into tucked away in a remote corner of the pasture, the one-room clubhouse, and the scout manual. You know, this thing, this other, like this, these creeds. These things that he said that they're supposed to say and believe, but loosely. I mean, even the this idea of helping an elderly person across the street, even when they didn't really need the help, it's just so hollow, right? There, <laughs> this creed is it, it just rings so hollow because they're just sort of he's he seems to imply that he's just going through the motions of it, and this idea of Ogilvy. He was immensely patient, good-natured, and kind, like a good scout, I suppose. And then he says, so clearly so that I felt there was not room in his nature for the unpredictable crankiness and unreasonable severity other grown-ups exhibited from time to time. But then the kids want his attention, and then somebody says, what kind of tree is that or something? And he says, a piss elm. <laughs> and <laughs> which, which seems pretty mild, but it seems to really shock Maxwell. He was really know? shocked but, as it, a kid. It, because, you know, this old perfect Professor Ogilvy does have a have a you know, is a is a man, you know, and and, and has in him uh, other things that they that that he wasn't expecting. 
which of course leads us to to the end of the story. Yeah. But but again, it seems like um, I think Maxwell John Updike said something about him something about him that really bugged me. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing it, but it was something like Maxwell is one of our best writers, and he's definitely our kindest. I feel that Maxwell's work is generous and humane, but I think kind is the wrong word. And I think this story kind of in, in, embodies the fact that that's an error. Like, and, and you know, and I don't know that Updike necessarily meant it as a diss, but it always felt to me like a little bit of a pat on the head. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and this story kind of busts that open. And maybe I make too much of the cruelty at the end, but we want to, you, do you want to talk about it? I do. But I, I do want to say, I mean, Ogilvy's the only adult we really see super directly and not really. It's sort of sidewise. It feels like the narrator is setting it up for us just to sort of say, I didn't allow for the fact that he was a fallible human being. Uh, well, allow for it. And not just because of Pesalm, not just <laughs> because of this sort of lack of patience that makes him say that or he was trying to be funny or what, it, he was inappropriate, but he apologized for his language. And then he says, the fact remained that he had said it. So it's just, it for me, it's like this moment that he's recorded in, in the context of all the rest of this, which is really important, that there, there's definitely something chipping away at his innocence or his naive way of looking at the world, and and things are about to bust w- wide open after this again. So it's sort of like this little chip, 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 and then we're sort of at a point where now he, you know, based on this influence from his parents or others about Russian Jews or anyone who's very different from them. Now his this this thing that happens um, is about to present itself, is about to be right at the fore of things. Yeah, and I mean, as, as good a man as Professor C.S. Ogilvy might have been, you know, he, he, he does, I don't argue that he's a symbol of the status quo or anything, but, you know, we're talking about the, you know, 1910s, 1920s in the U.S., where where society was infinitely more constricted, more racist, more anti-Semitic, more anti-everything. Yeah. And everybody that wasn't a white Presbyterian. Yes. And so, you know, the idea that, of course, he's got more in him. and But, you know, Maxwell is so insulated. It's like, you know, you don't expect a 12-year-old kid to get it. But he's starting to even feel it then. Yeah. And he, and he feels it when he enacts the power. And I don't mean to get too political in this story, but I think it's an awfully political story in a lot of ways where he literally enacts the power that that somebody of his positioning uh, is is permitted to wield. So can you talk about that with Maxie? What happens? All right. So, he, you know, he. he he says, uh, one, on a Monday night, we walked the little boys. So there, somebody decides to do an initiation. You know, and you see the word initiation, you want to run for cover, right? <laughs> yes. On, on Monday night, we walked the little boys. You clear out of town in the moonlight and halted when we came to a bridge. Somebody suggests that a foot race with blindfolds on, again, for this Cub Scout initiation. Uh, a handkerchief, and I remember because I was a Cub Scout, we had that handkerchief that had a little bla- brass sort of handkerchief holder <laughs> and 
put the handkerchief in the little brass thing mm. and, and sort of wear it like that. <laughs> handkerchief was included in the official Cub Scout uniform and they all had one. If they had been sent running up the road until we called them to stop, they might have tripped or bumped into each other and fallen down, but probably nothing worse. I noticed that the bridge we were standing on had low sides that came up about to the little boy's belly buttons. I cannot pretend that I didn't know what was going to happen, but a part of me that I, that I was not sufficiently acquainted with had taken over suddenly. And this is where I think like, even the great Maxwell, I'm not buying this. <laughs> and he slash I, come on, come on. I'm not, I, I and, and I revere Maxwell. <laughs> I just think, come on, you know, he needed his own editing right there. And he slash I, just, just leave it at I, own it, Bill. <laughs> and he slash I lined the blindfolded boys up with their backs to one side of the bridge facing the other and said, on your marks, get set, go. And they charged bravely across the bridge into the opposite railing and knocked the wind out of themselves. He undoes the, the falsehood of that he slash I with, with it, just an extraordinary paragraph. He goes from the very tentative he I, the very I'm not owning it totally, to I believe in the forgiveness of sins, some sins. It's an utterly different time and space. You know, we're back in wherever the present world is, the present world that, that never wasn't present even then, right? I mean, there was no earthly paradise. It was all smoke and mirrors, and it didn't take him long to know that. He's 12, and he's doing this to other kids. And they charged bravely across the bridge and into the opposite railing and knocked the wind out of themselves. Think about that. Think about that. Yeah, that's hard. What that would have been like. <laughs> you know, he's so good here. And and I think literally begging for forgiveness that is never going to come on the page where he shifts completely out of the scene and, and then tells us what happened from a distance. So maybe as as children... We've all been on one side or another of of bullying or an initiation or some terrible, cruel act on the, yes. on the playground. And those stories are out there. But this is not just that. So th this this idea you you said before, it is a very political story. There's all kinds of statements here about all kinds of different things. So I feel like there's something very salient that's running through this story. I mean, why bring it up? Why have a story that includes this sort of rite of passage thing that we all go through and, and talk about, bring up the Russian Jewish family, bring up the pogroms, bring up the everything else, and talk about the Presbyterian creed scout the boy scout creed and all of these sorts of things that we say out loud and we say with conviction and we say for everybody to hear and then commit such an act as this and create the story you know around that or refer to that memory so it's just very interesting to me that this is not this is not one of those rite of passage stories no, at no, all it, no it's it's a 
it's it's you know it's a story about the cruelty in everybody but the specific cruelty in in someone who does believe that they're generous and kind and who is generous and kind i do think maxwell reading his work it's impossible not to sort of think the kind of things that updike said you know there is this sort of generosity and warmth in his work but that that maxwell knew that that always had within it something else. Not saying that the, that the cruelty supersedes the generosity, but that the cruelty is always there. If you can't see that the cruelty is always there, then you're not getting it. I think that's what he's, I mean, you know, I, who knows? I'm going to say something different about the story in my head tomorrow. But I feel like the, the presence of the ability to always be able, on a dime, to turn around and do something that cruel on your marks, get set, go. And now run directly into a railing that's going to knock the wind out of you. You know, it didn't hit their heads. It hit them where? Like below the chest, sort of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and then, you know, he shifts back into that moment. The reason I didn't throw myself down on my knees in the dust and beg them. So he gets it right away after he's done the cruel thing. It's almost instantaneous that he realizes I have in me cruelty. The reason I didn't throw myself on my knees in the dust and beg them and God to forgive me is that I knew he wouldn't. And that even if he did, I wouldn't forgive myself. Sick with shame at the pain I had inflicted, I tore Max Rabinowitz's blindfold off and held him by the shoulders until his gasping subsided. Now, the story could end right there and it would be slightly redemptive but then there's this ultimate refusal of that ultimate of that redemption that i think is what makes the story as memorable one that always you know feels like a like a knife it's like a knife wound this story considering the multitude of things that happen in any one person's life it seems fairly unlikely that those little boys remembered the incident for very long it was an introduction of what was to come and cruelty could never again take them totally by surprise but I have remembered it. I have remembered it because it was the moment I learned that I was not to be trusted. And and I would just say, I don't believe that considering the multitude of things that happen in any one person's life, it seems fairly unlikely that those little boys remembered the incident for very long. I'm not sure I'm buying that. I'm not sure I'm buying that. And I'm not sure that the narrator of this story buys it either because of I just, I, I don't think that something like this is forgettable and he damn well knows it, but he also is aware that cruelty is piled on cruelty and that maybe other things are going to supersede it. But it's hard for me to imagine that little Max Rabinowitz um, doesn't sometimes feel that bar going into his stomach, courtesy of the Boy Scout leader. William Maxwell is the author of With Reference to an Incident at a Bridge. Peter Orner is the author of the essay collections Still No Word from You and Am I Alone Here. His story collections include Maggie Brown and Others and Esther Stories. His novels include Love and Shame and Love. He's a professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth College where he directs the creative writing program. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. 
Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>